Okay, so Acts chapter 21, but first, there's a, a verse that came to my mind as I was preparing for this message. It's actually in the book of, thank you John, not in the book of John, it's in the book of Matthew. Jesus said this to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's actually related to the hymn that we just sang. It really talks, to follow Jesus means to become more like Jesus. And uh, if you were to ask me, uh, maybe some years ago, do you follow Jesus? I would have probably, uh, if it was after I came to be saved, I would have said yes. And you'd ask me, what does that mean? Well, it means that I'm a Christian. You know, I, I decided that, you know, of all the people who teach different things about God, I, I decided I'm going to believe what Jesus said. Well, uh, there might be some truth in that, but that's weak. Actually, uh, the name Christian came about from believers in the first century trying to emulate the Lord, follow the Lord, be like the Lord, to the extent that they were labeled Christians by non-Christians as a description, well, they're little Christ. They're trying to be like Christ. That's what the name Christian means, is little Christ. Well, that's good. It showed that these guys had their, their hearts and their minds set on the right thing because that's what Jesus said. Anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. That's what they were trying. They were trying to become like Jesus. That's a good thing. Now, uh, we talk about that sometimes, and, and sometimes it could seem intimidating. Well, Jesus is telling us to be like him. Well, he's God. I can't be like him. Well, yet he tells us to be. Okay? Well, uh, Today we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have something that helps us in this track of seeing what it is that Jesus wants us to be and the fact that it is possible to become more like Jesus. And uh, what we have here is something that, that um, you can kind of think of as a landmark. A landmark is when I, I have a journey and it's, it's so far away and I can't see the end from the beginning, there might be something in between me and that location that I can see from where I am. And I can see, I might not be able to see uh, Danville from here, but I can see the hills, and someone might tell me, well, head toward the hills, and you get past them, you'll be able to see Danville. And so that's a landmark. Well, God gives us helps like that sometimes. He gives us people who, you know, they're not like Christ yet, but they're people that we can see, and they can be examples for us, because they've gone before us, they've become if you would, more like Christ than we are. And, and by looking at their life, we can, we can get an idea of where we need to head in our life. Their, their helps. And today we'll look at a help like that. And that help is the life of Paul. We've been talking about Paul quite a bit. In fact, this book started out without Paul being in the picture. Jesus commissioned his disciples. He, he, uh, the Holy Spirit came. They went into uh, all the world. And God picked one particular person, Paul, and Paul's been doing the work with them. And now the story really carries on with Paul to a very large extent. We really are focusing on his life. And I believe the purpose for that is God wants us to see what he made out of the life of Paul. As really as an example for us, as a landmark for us, to, to see the way we need to be also conforming to the life of Christ. Okay? 
Now, having said that, we're not leaving the main theme that we picked. Remember what the theme of this book was? We talked about it a number of times. It was a key verse we looked at. Okay, I'm, I'm half deaf with my cold, so I'll just say it. You probably already said it. But Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And usually when we think about building the church is, well, you know, unbelievers are going to come to believe in Christ. They're going to join the church. They'll be saved from hell. They're now going to go to heaven. Great. You know, Christ is building his church. Well, that's true. But there's something else that Christ is doing. When you're saved, Christ is not done with you. He's still working in you. He's shaping you. Okay? We know ultimately he's shaping you to be like him. There's a good illustration uh, taken from, from a verse in the scripture. Peter says this. It says this, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. And he is taking, uh, using this image to describe the church, uh, Christ taking and adding people to his church. But if you think about it, when you put a stone into a building, usually you have to shape it to fit into that building. And, and so Christ saves us, he adds us to the church, but he is also shaping us. So it's still the same work. It's still Christ building his church. When Christ is working in my life, Conforming me more to his image, with he's still building his church. It's still that same work, still that same uh, theme that we started with in this book. Christ is still doing it. He's building his church. Okay, with that, let's uh, uh, pick up in Acts chapter 21 and verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Cos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So where is Paul going? 
Jerusalem. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Live a gift. Very good. If you've uh, been following with us, it actually doesn't appear in this text, but we talked about it in, the, in 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, and then the book of Romans, about the fact that there was a, a movement of the Spirit in the churches in Galatia and Achaia, those are regions in Greece, uh, Greece and Macedonia, you can say. And the Holy Spirit's been moving and been uh, steering the saints to give a financial gift for the poor saints that were at Jerusalem. And, uh, and Paul is carrying this gift, is the one who's bringing this gift to uh, Judea, to Jerusalem, to the poor saints. Now, uh, it's of course a wonderful thing. I mean, you have people that are in, in physical need. They, they may be lacking for things that we consider uh, accessible to us, like housing, clothing, food, that they might be in real want. And here's people that are, are stirred up by the love of Christ, and they're going to give uh, a financial gift to support these people and help them in their hard time. And that's a great thing. Now, Paul, uh, what I really like here about Paul is he recognizes additional things that God is going to be accomplishing through this gift. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Second Corinthians. Chapter 9. This is Paul. He's talking to the Corinthians about this gift. He's really uh, reminding them, stirring them up again, because they've, it seems that uh, they forgot or in some way grown lax about this uh, gift that they promised to give. And he tells them about all these things that God is going to accomplish, that he's recognizing that God is going to be accomplishing through this gift. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 12. It says, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. There's at least three uh, spiritual reasons that Paul gives here of why there's such a great value in this gift that he is carrying uh, that to uh, the saints in Jerusalem. So number one here, he talks about thanksgiving to God. God is concerned for his saints in their poverty. And because of that, he steers the, the, the uh, saints a thousand miles away to give financially, financially and to help these, these uh, poverty-stricken uh, believers in Jerusalem. And by Paul bringing it to them, he realizes it's not just supplies for their needs, it encourages them because it reminds them of how much God cares for them. It will abound in thanksgiving to God. They'll, they'll be thanking God because they realize this is a work of God. Paul will describe to them what God has done and how God is taking care of them a thousand miles away, sending this gift. It's encouraging when, when we see God taking care of us in a special way. And that's what's happening here. Second, it says here that they will glorify God for uh, the obedience of your confession for the gospel of Christ. Uh, when, when people learn that, that um, I am a Jew, I have a Jewish background, and yet Jesus saved me, uh, and I have come into all the blessings of the inheritance in Christ, they, they will often 
glorify God for me. They'll say, wow, you know, he was able to save a Jew. It seems so hard these days for Jews to be saved. And so, you know, that's how great God is, is still able to save Jews. And that's true. God is great. Well, from the perspective of these saints in Jerusalem, well, it's kind of natural for Jews to believe in Jesus, right? He, he, you know, God, they were God's uh, special people. He promised them he will send a Messiah. The Messiah came from among them. He did miracles among them. He rose among them. I mean, it's somehow natural. If anyone will believe he's the Messiah and come to him and to the inheritance of the good things in Christ, it'll be the Jews. Okay? And yet now they're going to hear about this great movement of God a thousand miles away among the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are coming to Christ. And like, wow. You know, look what God is accomplishing. And so they'll glorify. Paul is coming with this news about what God is, is doing. And he realizes... And, and the evidence of it, that it's not just, you know, word of mouth. Oh, yeah, the Gentiles are saying they believe. Well, it's this gift. <laughs> it shows, when people are willing to part from their money, it shows God is really working in their lives. And, uh, and so, you know, he knew this will encourage them. It will show the work that God is doing. A third thing, and that's perhaps the most obvious, is it will cause the, the Jewish believers to pray for the Gentiles believer and to love them more because of this gift. I mean, it's natural. When someone gives you a gift, helps you, you appreciate them more, you love them more. And this was important because in those days especially, there was a real division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Not so much in the church, praise God. God was working to, to seal that difference. But generally speaking, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. And so now God was bringing them into a one new man in Christ. But this is something that was a continuous work. And this gift was helping, again, bring them together and solidify that union. Again, there's no difference that we're, we're one man in Christ, but a lot of time we carry a lot of baggage with us. And this was God's way of helping, you know, get rid of some of the baggage that might have been in the Jewish minds against the Gentiles. Look how they love you in Christ. So, so Paul is recognizing all these things, and really that's, to me, this is the first uh, picture we have of Jesus here. Why? Well, uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of time at the end of the day, you know, I come back from home and there was like, you know, what did I do for God today? Nothing. And there really wasn't any opportunity to do anything for God. And what it really is, a lot of time, is I have a very limited view of the things of God and the opportunities I have to serve God and the things that God is doing around me. And some people may have not seen much in this gift and yet Paul is seeing all these things that God is accomplishing through this financial gift that he was carrying to Jerusalem. He had a mind for the things of God and the things that God was accomplishing. And it reminded me of, of a, a passage in the Gospel of John where there's a blind man that's been blind from birth and probably just sitting there by the road and, and the disciples, you know, and Jesus are walking by and the disciples are asking Jesus, you know, Lord, who sinned that, you know, this man or his parents that he should be born blind? You know, what a miserable situation we have here. And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Again, this is Jesus. He had the sight for the things of God. To the disciples, this was this miserable situation. For Jesus, it was an opportunity for the work of God. And he does it. Jesus, you know, heals this man, you know, effectively sends this man as a, as a missionary that doesn't even know him. And this man really shows the hardness of the, of the hearts of the, uh, Jewish leadership against Jesus really just reveals, puts them to shame and shows the illogic 
in their opposition to Christ. I mean, Jesus really saw an opportunity here where, you know, other people saw a desperate situation. Well, Paul is, is like that. He sees opportunities for the things of God. And I want to be like that more. I want to see opportunities for the things of God and, you know, the everyday things that are happening around me. Okay, uh, so we, we started this passage, right? We were reading through it, and uh, we're not going to look at the map. Rick did that uh, last week on the travels, on, on Paul's traveling to uh, Jerusalem. <coughs> but there is, another, there is something there that, that is worth gleaning. I, uh, so the, the distance that Paul traveled here is about a thousand miles, uh, approximately, from where uh, the gift originated and where the gift was going to. And uh, yesterday, Shen and I were invited to a birthday party, and I talked with one of my neighbors who was also invited to the birthday party, and he told me about uh, looking for uh, maybe taking a cruise up to Oregon or Washington, and uh, that's about a thousand miles. And how many of you would like to take a cruise, a cruise ship up to Oregon or Washington? Any volunteers? Okay, now, I've sometimes wanted to go too, but, you know, there's certain financial constraints that we have. And uh, so we're not going to enjoy the full, uh, you know, uh, uh, luxuries that, that perhaps exist today in, uh, in cruise ships. So we'll take an older ship. That's okay. And, uh, well, you know, one of the things about this ship, it doesn't have an engine. We're going to have to take, we have to go the old style, you know, we'll, we'll take a sail ship. That's all right. Take a little longer. Maybe instead of a few days, it'll take about a month. But that's all right. <laughs> okay, well, there's another problem. The ship is made of wood. There's not going to be fires allowed. So we're not going to be able to cook your food for you for a month. That's all right. Also, there isn't any electricity on the ship. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, no refrigeration. So you can have, you know, your your uh, foods that don't perish. You can eat those cold for the next month. And there really, there isn't a room for every guest. There's really only one cabin. So you'll have to share it with everybody else that travels on the ship. And I'm not sure what kind of beds they have. It might be more like cots. So how many people still want to go? <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, some of you are adventurous, I'll give you the credit for that. But it probably wasn't, you know, a real pleasant trip, you know, from what we would consider uh, nice traveling accommodation. And you could imagine, you know, Paul, and it's not going to fit because we know Paul is like that, but, you know, the Holy Spirit is moving in Greece and stirring up the saints to give this gift to Jerusalem, and, you know, that's great, and... Well, you know, maybe somebody will take it, though. But, you know, I don't really care for the trip myself. And so maybe God will find somebody, somebody else. Well, there's a problem because there's nobody else who can really do what Paul needs to do here. Because it takes really somebody that has a sight and, a, and can see what God is doing. You know, real oversight of the churches there and see how the Spirit of God is moving. And it needs to be someone who can really understand the Jewish mindset in Jerusalem. And that will be accepted, though that can describe what God is doing, to really effectively do this mission that needed to be done. There was a gap there that nobody else could fill. And so Paul went. And uh, that again reminds me of the Lord Jesus. There's, there's a, a verse in uh, Ezekiel. 
God is speaking and he says this, And I sought for a man among them that should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And he talks about God looking at the nation of Israel, a nation of rebels and people who have strayed from him. And his judgment needs to come because of their sin. And God just wished that someone would stand there between him and them and intercede on their behalf and cause him to turn his wrath and his judgment from them. But there was no one. And the same situation applies to you and me in our sins before God. His judgment needs to come. His wrath needs to come. And the heart of God cried out for someone who would stand between and intercede. And there was none. But there was one. And that was the Lord Jesus. And his heart was stirred by the fact that there was this desire in the heart of God for someone to stand between and turn away his wrath from the people. And the Lord Jesus went and became that man. He was the man who filled the gap, who fulfilled God's God's heart desire so that the wrath turned away from you and me and instead we can have a relationship with God and go to heaven. And Jesus was that man. The next obstacle that we see Paul comes across in this passage is found in a a couple of occurrences here. First in verse 4. Remember, Paul is going on this mission to Jerusalem, carrying this gift and having this ministry. And says, in finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So that's a problem. He's going on this mission to Jerusalem, and his believers are coming and saying, Paul, stop. Don't go. And uh, it's, it can be confusing for us. Well, why, what's happening here? And it's a little more obvious in the next section we look at. So look, let's look at that one. In verse 10, it says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and his feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, so here we have to divide very clearly what the Holy Spirit is doing and what Paul's friends are doing. The Holy Spirit is saying this. Paul is going to be bound in Jerusalem. He's going to be in prison in Jerusalem. And apparently, this happened again and again through every city he went to. The Holy Spirit said that. The Holy Spirit never said to Paul, do not go to Jerusalem, which the Holy Spirit has done various occasions at other times when Paul was trying to go to other places. The Holy Spirit was very clear. Don't go there. Paul did not go there. Okay, the Holy Spirit did not say it this time. It was Paul's friend, and you know, these are good people, and they love Paul, and they're like, you know, we don't want to see this happening to you, Paul. You know, we know, you know, it's going to be a terrible experience for you. We know, you know, you might end up being killed at the end of that. We don't know what else is going to happen to you. We don't want it to happen to you. Paul, Please don't go to Jerusalem. Okay? So it was them that were telling Paul not to go. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that was telling. And, and, and there's really a lot of verses that confirm that Paul was in the center of God's will going to Jerusalem. Perhaps the clearest is when Paul was in prison, which is about to happen, Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, 
you know, well done, just as you served me here in Jerusalem, so you will serve me in Rome. So again, he was going in the center of God's will to him. So why are his friends telling him not to go? Well, we already said they love Paul. But uh, there's something wrong with them. Okay, which, which is something that's usually very often wrong with me too. And I'm sure we all, to some extent, uh, experience it. And there's a good book written by Bill that came to my mind as I was thinking about it. It's called, uh, let's see, I think I brought a copy with me. And I think they, they're still available. You know what? Yeah, there it is. There you go. Anyone recognizes this book? Grasping for Shadows. It's a good book. Shadows. What are shadows? Well, shadows are things that appear, have an appearance, but they have no substance to them. And uh, it talks about the things that the world values. And, and we often tend to value. They tend to be things like education, career, wealth, uh, popularity. And there's a lot of things that are esteemed by this world, but they have no real substance. How do you know? Well, because in eternity they're not going to count. Okay? After you die, you die and go to heaven, nobody will care that you have a doctorate from Stanford or Harvard or any other college. It's not going to matter. Nobody is going to care that you were the CEO of a successful company. Nobody will care if you were, you know, you know, one of the 500 richest people in the world. It will have no value. And yet, we have a tendency, and I know in myself, to esteem those things. Sharon and I are talking about homeschooling our children, and, and we meet other kids, uh, other people with kids our age, and they always ask us, what are you going to do with your kids? And, you know, you put them into preschool when they're one or two, and, you know, you, you want them to master, I think it's two or three, but, you know, you have this plan of how to get them into a good college <laughs> from the point they're two or three years old. You know, and you're concerned, am I getting the best schools for them? Better move to this school district so they get a better school, or you know, juggle our budget to see if we can afford a private school to help them get there. I mean, we spend no expense to get them to the best school and we push them to get the best career. We encourage them to get, you know, to get financial security. And, you know, we have somewhat of the same. We can feel the desire for these things. We want the best for our kids. Well, the problem is we want something that's not the ultimate best for them. I mean, you know, these things are, are good. You know, we all want them, but they're not the best. And when you aim somebody toward them, then they will often miss going after what God has for them. And in this case, it, it was a direct opposite. Paul was going to Jerusalem to complete his mission for Christ. They're like, uh-uh, Paul, that's not the best thing for you. And I Paul, uh-uh, you're wrong. That is the best thing for me. You know, that, that's, that's what he says. He wanted to finish his race with joy. He wanted to do the will of God, which is really... That's, that's the ultimate good for us, is fulfilling the will that God has. The plan God has for our life, the things God has for us to do, the changes he wants to do, that's the best. That's, that's what will count for eternity. My, my education, money, career, you know, it becomes a shadow. It will evaporate. It will have no value eventually. And so, to Paul saw that and, you know, praise God, verse 14, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Paul stuck with it. And how does that remind me of Jesus? Well, there was a similar uh, situation with Jesus. You recognize it immediately when I start reading it. 
It says this, Then Peter took him aside, took the Lord Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You know when this happened? Jesus started telling his disciples about the fact he's going to have to go to the cross and suffer and die. And Peter's like, no, that's not the best for you, Lord. You know, may it never be. And Jesus tells, tells Peter, you're not mindful of the things of God. You're only mindful of the things of men. And praise God, Jesus persisted to the cross. Oh, none of us would be here today. So stick, stick with God's plan for your life. That's the best. All right, let's continue reading at verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them one Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such things except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So Paul has now arrived to Jerusalem and is doing exactly what he came to do. He's, he's sharing with the elders and with James, who appears to be perhaps a figurehead right now in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he's sharing with them about all the wonderful things God has been doing uh, among the Gentile churches. This movement of God probably told them about this gift. And they glorify God. They should. God has been doing wonderful things. But a problem comes that is threatens to, uh, if you would, shipwreck this mission that uh, Paul is on. And that's why it's so important. Uh, rumors have been spread around that Paul has been teaching the Jews, uh, Jewish believers, in maybe the area he was ministering in Greece to forsake Moses, to stop following Jewish laws and Jewish customs. And uh, because of that, these, these, the Jewish people, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, who were described, or at least some of them, as being zealous for the law, they esteemed highly the law of God. God gave a lot of commandment in the Old Testament that uh, we look at today and we realize, well, you know, these things are really shadows. You know, they, there's no real moral reason of why someone needed to, you know, shave their head, you know, uh, 
go to the temple and sacrifice animals and go through this ritual that is going to be described here. There's nothing particularly uh, good about it. But it was a shadow. It was a picture of, of God's plan of salvation, a picture of Christ, a picture of maybe dedicated believers. But it was just a shadow. And so these things, you know, don't have to us a real value. But the early Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they might, may have seen all the beauties in those laws or they may have not quite realized yet that these laws are just a shadows and don't have a real substance to them. So they were zealous for them. They thought they were really important to keep and to do. Well, so them, them hearing rumors that Paul was telling the Jews, Jewish believers elsewhere to forsake these type of customs offended them. And, uh, and it, it's a risk because if they're offended by Paul, it means they might not believe what he says. It, it basically, it's a, if you would, it's a character assassination. If you don't respect somebody, you're not going to listen what, what they say. You might refuse the gift that he is bringing. And uh, <clears throat> this will impact his ministry. His, his whole ability of ministering in Jerusalem is affected by this rumor that's been going around about the way Paul has, the things Paul has been teaching. Now, Paul never teaches in the scripture, never teaches the Jews that they need to forsake these things. It actually says in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, where you saved while circumcised, well, remain circumcised. You don't have to change just because you've been saved. You can, you can stay and you can continue to do these same things. They may not have a real value in them, but you can continue doing it. What Paul taught is that none of these things bring you any closer to God. Keeping the law will not save you. The only way to God is through Jesus. And that might be how some people started interpreting, well, he's teaching people not to, to keep the law because he's saying that the law is not necessary to be saved. But Paul never taught that. So, so what's being told about Paul here is lies. Okay, He never told people to stop observing the law. Um, but it's still a serious issue. Well, what to do about it? <coughs> well, the counsel Paul receives from the Jerusalem elders is to participate in this ritual, cleansing ritual. Um, Excuse me. We don't know exactly what uh, what type of a ritual this was. It may have been part of the Nazarite ritual that is discussed in the scriptures. <coughs> but um, the main thing is it's, it was it was a custom, a Jewish custom, and by keeping it, Paul would show that he's not opposed to people doing such things. Right? If Paul was really opposed to people practicing it, he wouldn't do it himself. And so by him practicing this ritual, then he would basically put to death these rumors. That's what the Jerusalem elders are telling him. If you just follow this ritual, you do this, you're not, you know, that will get rid of this problem and you'll be able to fulfill your ministry. Or, you know, it will be for the good. It will be for the good of the saints. Well, there's a lot of discussion about this. Uh, a lot of commentators think that Paul should not have done this. They think, well, you know, you're... You know, this, this cleansing ritual doesn't bring you any closer to God. Why are you doing it, Paul? Well, in defense of Paul, uh, there's two things. First of all, he was following the counsel of the elders. And, and that's always a good idea. The second thing is Paul was following a principle that he already disclosed in, in the scriptures elsewhere. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll look at verse 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 20. Paul said this, 
For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So Paul says that he is free from all men. What he means by that, he has no obligation. Paul doesn't have to do it. Paul can just walk out of Jerusalem and say, you know what? not interested in doing this. Uh, I, you know, this doesn't bring me any closer to God. I am my own free man. I'm not going to do it. Paul could have said that. But what he says here, he's made himself a servant to all. What he means by that, he is not thinking about his good. He is thinking about the good of others. And he recognizes that it's going to be to the good of, of the Jerusalem saints if Paul, if he participates in this cleansing ritual. And there's a couple of reasons, at least. One is it might keep them from stumbling. And Paul talks here about the weak. People who have a weak conscience think you have to do certain things. Well, you don't have to do them, but they could be led to stumble by a believer that doesn't have the same um, uh, conscience issue about these things. So out of concern for their conscience, he's doing it. And really to be able to complete this ministry. Because if he doesn't do it and there's these feelings against him like that in the Jerusalem saints, his ministry will be hampered. And for their good, so they'll be able to, to have all the advantages that, he's, advantages that he's bringing to them. That's why Paul is doing it. It's really for their advantages, not for his. And uh, that made me think of, of a verse in, in Philippians. It says this, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, so this was the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ wasn't thinking about his own thing. It was thinking about the things of others, being concerned for others. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with, with where this passage is, it's really talking about Christ leaving heaven and coming for us. If Christ was only concerned with himself, he would have stayed in heaven. He would have never come to earth. He would have never died on the cross. It's the fact that Christ has concerns for us. He is concerned for, the, for our things, our concerns also, that cause Christ to leave heaven and come to earth and then go to the cross. So it's a good thing to have a mind for the things of others. It's being like Jesus. All right. Uh, let's finish the passage. So back to Acts chapter 21, and we'll continue in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, their fission with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions 
and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Well, uh, this is uh, exactly what, what uh, Paul would have had a right to be dreading all this time, and really all the other believers, because the Holy Spirit predicted that this was going to happen. And so when Paul is at the temple, serving God, again following uh, the leading that, that he had from God, of doing what God wanted him to do, some of his uh, old enemies from Greece see him, and, and Sharon asked me, well, what was the Greek, you know, Jews from Greek doing at the temple at this time? Well, there was a feast. This was one of the feasts of the Lord in Jerusalem, and Jews from all over the world will come to the feast. And so it's not surprising that some of the Jews from Greece also came and saw Paul in there. In fact, we know they saw him before. They saw him in the city too. Well, they take this as their opportunity. They've hated Paul. And, and, and let's say, why did they hate Paul? Well, all Paul did for them was always good. He was always concerned for them. And we'll see that really uh, in the next chapter, we'll talk about Paul's feeling for his Jewish people. But he always, every city, he first went to the synagogue, first trying to win the Jews, telling them that really they were wrong. Their being Jews is not going to get them to heaven. They're, they're keeping, trying to keep the law is not going to get them to heaven. They're going to the temple you know, three times a year, is not going to get them into heaven. The only thing that could save them was Christ. Christ has come and died on the cross and paid for their sins and rose again. And that's the way to heaven. So all he wanted for them was good. But they didn't like his message. They didn't like hearing that being Jews didn't get them to heaven. They didn't like hearing that they couldn't keep the law good enough to get to heaven. And they didn't like hearing that, you know, going to the temple and the sacrifice and all of that is not going to get them into heaven. So they didn't like Paul. You know, he was serving God and ministering to them, and, and they hated him because of it. And now they had the opportunity. They're in the temple, so all the Jews there are very zealous for the things of, of God, of Judaism. And they point to him and say, this man has been teaching against our people, against the law, and against the temple. And they grab him, and it seems that that's all it took to just stir up a mob to want to murder Paul. And they were on the way to murder Paul, when, you know, God had other plans, he sends the Roman garrison, and the Roman garrison literally snatches Paul out of their hands and literally carries Paul on, on their shoulders to get him out of there without people killing him. So, praise God, he delivered Paul. But, uh, but it, we have here really the final thing uh, that, that reminded me of Christ in looking at Paul's life. And, uh, and that was his willingness to suffer for the work of God. He knew it was going to be extensive. His warning has come all along, and yet, and yet he, he didn't budge. And it's interesting. A lot of people look at, at these things happening to Paul, and they say, see, Paul, you shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, see, you know, all this thing about you know, this ritual of cleansing was a bad idea. But the funny thing is, is, we, is this looking at, at suffering or persecution or rejection, because of trying to share the gospel with people or serving God as a sign that we must be doing something wrong. Well, in the Bible it says that we must be doing something right. 
It says, uh, it says this in Second Timothy, uh, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What does that mean? Well, if you're not experiencing any rejection, well, there's a good question whether you're living godly in Christ Jesus. I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible says. It doesn't say if you suffer persecution, there's something wrong. It says if you're not suffering persecution, there's probably something wrong. So, so Paul was right there where God wanted him to be. Uh, but as I said, it reminded me of Christ, and this is really uh, the last verse I was, uh, I had to share about that, is, uh, you recognize it as soon as I read it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, uh, and this is good. I mean, Jesus did not enjoy being on the cross. We're not expected to enjoy persecution. Okay, I mean, that would be an oxymoron to suggest something like that. But for the joy that was set before him, what joy was it? We're fulfilling the desire of his Father's heart. Filling that gap we talked about. Doing the thing that God wanted him to do. Accomplishing it. Feeling, satisfying the desire of God. That was the joy that he was looking for. And compared to that, it says that he despised the shame, meaning he thought little of it. Well, Jesus suffered a lot on the cross. But, you know, I, I, I'm not going to belittle that. But when Jesus compared the two, he thought less of suffering. He, he was, to him, the greater, the more important thing was pleasing God. And that's the attitude we need to have as well. We don't need to enjoy persecution. Nobody does. But we need to esteem the joy of doing the will of God higher than the suffering of persecution or rejection. <clears throat> well, I don't know about you, I'm kind of convicted looking at, you know, a little bit of the image of Christ by looking at the, at the life of Paul. And there's an encouragement. The encouragement has to do with the fact that God selected Paul as this picture for us to look at. Why did God select Paul and not Peter, right? I mean, Peter was you know, the main guy for a while. Or John, the beloved apostle. I mean, there's a lot of other people we could look at. But there's a reason God selected Paul. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace told me it was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God that was in me. The reason God picked Paul is because we have his full story here. He was a persecutor of the church. He was the worst kind of guy that there could be. He didn't like anybody, <laughs> least of all Christ and the people of Christ. And yet God took him from there into what we see in Paul today. And we know, well, that's a work of God. Well, it's going to be the same thing for me and you to become like Christ. It's the work of God. But praise God, that we have Christ's promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. really applies to the work he's doing in me. He will finish it. He will finish that work. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness toward us and that having saved us, you're not satisfied with that, but you want to make us like your son. Oh, what joy that will be, what glory that will be to be like him and to see him as he is because like he is, we will be also. We give you all the thanks and all the glory because you deserve both. In Jesus' name.